It's time to read the next part of Revelation chapter 2, which you have on the inside of your leaflet. And here today we have another letter to the next two churches. To the angel of the church of Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, thank, thank you, Caroline, and uh, it's good to be back. Narelle and I had two weeks off, visited a couple of other Trinity churches down at Tonsley and Mile End while we were away, and uh, that was great very encouraging. And uh, it's a tremendous privilege to be able to open God's word 
for us today. This is how he pastors us, challenges us, encourages us, feeds us. So please keep your leaflet open or your Bibles open. We'll be going through this passage. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are hungry for your word. We cannot live without it. We need direction. We need you, uh, your input into our lives. And so we pray, give us that humility of heart to listen and help me to be clear so that we can understand what really is a living word through which you speak and you, you drive home your will for us. So please help us to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so from that reading, Revelation chapter two, we are reminded that being a follower of Jesus isn't easy. Now, if you're finding following Christ hard going, that's very helpful actually, to to realise this is normal, what you experience. And it's encouraging for you to know that Jesus has something to say on this. If you're finding following Christ easy, well, you're reminded that's an abnormal experience. It's not normally the case. And you need to be reminded, of course, the good life you're experiencing now is not heaven, okay? That would be a mistake to think that it is. And then, of course, we're reminded of our connection with the millions of others around the world who feel tremendous pressure every day to compromise. But, of course, we all feel that, don't we? Uh, When sin seems so attractive, you know, you long for sexual intimacy and connection um, and you seek it outside of marriage. You know you shouldn't. What's the harm? When your livelihood depends on working alongside people who are happy to work with you so long as you never mention Jesus, you don't let your faith touch the way you work together. Every follower of Jesus feels pressure to give in. And when we feel the pressure, it's tempting to think that temptation perhaps wouldn't be so strong if we lived elsewhere, if we went to another place, maybe somewhere bigger, a city where, you know, you keep your head down, you could... um, you know, just get absorbed in the crowd. Um, Or maybe if you live somewhere smaller, a smaller community where people really valued one another, then it would be easy. Guess what? It's not. Today we discover there's nowhere that's really easy to be a follower of Jesus. Pergamum, we're covering two cities. Pergamum was a very big city, Thyatira not. Pergamum was the most important of the seven cities mentioned in these seven letters, the seven cities of Asia Minor. It was the leading city of the Roman province. It was a major intellectual city. It had a library of more than 200,000 volumes, which for the ancient world was huge. So it just stood alongside Athens and Alexandria. Athens over in Greece, Alexandria down in Egypt. But Pergamum, that was the center in Asia Minor. Added to that massive military base, so the city was built down on the plains on the bank of the river. Up above, 400 meters up above, was a Roman citadel, massive Roman fortress, okay? So massive military base there, boasting Rome's impressive power and might. Added to that, it was a major religious center. There was the temple to Athena, an altar to Zeus. It was the first city that had had a temple to a living Roman ruler, Caesar Augustus, that began in Pergamum. And each year, every uh, citizen was required to offer a sacrifice to Caesar as God. Now, that was an issue. Jews were let off the hook. Theirs was an ancient religion, but Christianity, that was new. They weren't let off the hook. And if you didn't do it, you could lose your life. 
So it would have been very easy for Christians in Pergamum to think life would be much easier if I lived somewhere smaller, somewhere like Thyatira, 40 kilometres down the road on the road to Sardis. Not necessarily. Christians in Thyatira, yes, they weren't required to offer sacrifice to Caesar as a god, but they still felt the pressure. Okay, small town. It's run by guilds, which are associated with business. Business and social life operate around the trade guilds. You've got the shoemakers, you've got the dyers of cloth, you've got the bronze smiths. Uh, the city's divided into squares. Each guild has a square, and life happens within those. Each trade guild had a patron god or goddess. The main god worshipped in Thyatira was Apollo, who was the son of Zeus. Apollo was the sun god. And his statue in Thyatira was bronze. It would catch the sunlight and reflect its brilliance. Now, to be part of the city, um, social life and business life revolved around the guilds and worship of the gods. That just happened. It was all interconnected. Worship of the gods, especially Apollo. And if you didn't do that, then you just weren't one of them. You were different. You raised people's ire. You were excluded. Your livelihood got threatened because you might lose your job if you're employed or if you had a business, you'll lose your clients. And being a smaller place, everyone knows. So there was nowhere easy. And through Jesus' letter, letters to the angels of these churches, a big city and a small city, Jesus is speaking directly to us, directly to us through his spirit. I take it that there's seven letters because they comprise Jesus' consistent message to all of his churches until he returns. Seven, that number, is not accidental. It means completeness. There are other, other churches around, of course, in other cities, but these seven... Uh, chosen. Why? Because seven means completeness. And at the end of each letter, Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Those letters are meant for us. Together they comprise Jesus' complete message to all of his churches until his coming again. So what is he saying to us through these messages, through these letters? Well, the first thing he wants us to, to do is to open our eyes to his identity, that however great is the pressure against us, the first point is that he is a greater counterpoint to the pressure. So in Pergamum, faithfulness to Jesus could cost you your life. But to the church in Pergamum, he is the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. He is the one to trust in. He is the one to fear. He is the true ruler and the judge. He is the one with ultimate authority, with the power. Who he is, is a more powerful counterpoint to the pressure that the Christians feel in Pergamum. In Thyatira, the city that worships Apollo, the, the sun god, the so-called son of Zeus as well, Jesus reveals himself as the son of God. It's the only time in the book of Revelation that that phrase is used of Jesus. He is the son of God. Um, and if Apollo is the god of the sun and his bronze statue is a sight to behold, Jesus' eyes are like blazing fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. So whatever pressure is felt in the all-powerful bronze guild, Jesus' identity is a greater counterpoint to that. Who he is is bigger. 
greater, more awesome. In his heavenly identity, he has more power, more authority, he is more glorious, he is more majestic, he is a greater counterpoint in every way to whatever pressure you may be feeling. Now, realizing that enables you to stand firm. Realizing that, taking it to heart, has enabled Christians to resist to the point of death. Because whatever Satan does, he could do his worst. Ultimately, Jesus is more than a match for him. The next thing the Spirit wants us to hear is Jesus' encouragement. So his identity is a greater counterpoint now, his encouragement. He says, I get your situation. I really get it. In Pergamum, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, we read that and we, we can be confused about the tone. Is he saying, I know where you live? You know, is, is this a beef that he's got against the Christians? No, it's compassionate. I get it, I understand. I know where you live. I know how hard it is for you. It's harder than other places. You know, yours is the city where Satan lives, where Satan has his throne. And that's why the pressure to denounce me is so explicit where you live. That's why the people there hate you so much when you resist. That's why in the last round of persecution, your fellow believer and brother in Christ, Antipas, he was put to death. You know, that much loved member of your church. He was my faithful witness. And it's no accident that the Greek word for witness is mater. Martyr. He says, I know where you live. And then he says, and guess what? I see your fruit. Despite Satan having his throne in Pergamum, you remain true to my name. You didn't renounce me, not even when Antipas was put to death. Or of those in Thyatira, he says, I know your deeds, I know your love, I know your faith, your service, your perseverance, and even more, you've grown in these. You are now doing more than you did at first. I want you to hear Jesus' commendation, right? He's not just setting them up for a fall when he says, but I have this against you. He's actually commending them. And it's really important we listen to this, okay? He values the fruit that he sees in their life. It's not the case that they are just hopeless sinners, moral worms, spiritual infants, you know, and that's all they'll ever be. No, no, no. You didn't renounce me. You stayed true. You're faithful. Hard work, service, love, perseverance. So we've got to hear that, the commendation of Jesus. But then he does say, look, I do have a few things against you. And when we read that in these letters, it's really easy to get confused, isn't it? You know, is he like saying, like I'm like a teacher and you're like a student and yes, I'm going through your exam results, tick, 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 you got that right, tick, 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 but bah, bah, failed, not good enough, F on your report card. It's really confusing, isn't it? Isn't he the one who loves us and has freed us by, from our sins by his blood, chapter one, verse five? Isn't that the whole point of the gospel? <laughs> so why does he seem to give a rather damning report card? Well, he does it for them because the truth is that there are some sins which, even though he's freed us from, if we enter into again and give ourselves to them and then become hooked by them, 
all right? Then they can so shipwreck our faith that either we're going to wake up one day and go, you know what? I used to believe, but now I don't. Or we say we believe, but we're playing make-believe. We've so watered down and changed the God that we believe in that we've effectively emasculated Jesus, invented a new religion, and walked away from the one who is true. Both could happen, and Jesus points out the things he has against them because he wants us to stay true believers, freed from sin, worshipping him as he is. Now, in both cities, there's a similarity of their issues, and that's why we're looking at them together. There's also differences. It's worse in Thyatira. But the common issue is a tolerance in their church of sexual immorality as well as idolatry. In the Bible, in Israel's history, sexual immorality and idolatry often go hand in hand. Sometimes idolatry leads to sexual immorality in Israel's history and sometimes the opposite happens. Sexual immorality leads to idolatry. Okay, the worship of another God. That's the case in Pergamum. Because within the congregation, there were, Jesus says, some amongst you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And we go, I think I remember reading him in the Bible somewhere a long time ago. What's that about? Okay. The story of Balaam happened in the time of Moses. It's a sad story in Israelite history. We'll be covering it next year when we do the book of Numbers. So looking forward to it. Numbers, despite the name of the book, is not boring. It's got all the juicy stories, right? Okay, so here's the story. Israel have come up out of Egypt. They're poised to enter the promised land. Moab, the country on on the right, is feeling very, very nervous. And the Moabite king is wondering about what basically two or three million people coming up and invading is gonna mean for him and his people. So the Israelites are camped down in the valley. Balak, the Moabite king, is up on a plateau. He's standing up there looking down at these millions of people below and getting freaked out. He's nervous because clearly God is with these people. He's taken them out of Egypt. So what can a Moabite king do? Well, what he, he has to play a supernatural card, but he's just a king, right? So what he does is he hires a seer, right, a sorcerer from Persia, Iraq. His name is Balaam. And Balak, the Moabite king, gets Balaam over, and they're both standing on top of the plateau looking down. And Balak, the Moabite king, says to Balaam, you've got to curse these people. You've got to put a supernatural curse on them, which will destroy them and wipe them out. And Balaam says, I can only do what the Lord says. It's an amazing confession for a sorcerer. Four times, right? One, two, three, four. Balaam refuses to curse because God gives him a blessing and he blesses them instead of cursing them. Now that means that Balak decides not to pay Balaam because he hasn't delivered the goods. But Balaam is still greedy for the funds. So he comes up with another plan. Instead of cursing the Israelites, he leads the nation, the men particularly, to turn from the Lord, how? Through sex. So he sends into their camp a bunch of foxy-looking Moabite women 
who enticed the Israelites first into open sex and then into the worship of the Moabite gods. He turns their hearts, right? Sexual immorality leads to idolatry. A tolerance of sexual looseness which turns the hearts of God's people from him towards God's who aren't real. Now, in verse 15 in Revelation 2, there's that word likewise. You could have erased that and you would have thought what comes next, the practice of the Nicolaitans, what's that? That's something different. That word likewise tells you that actually this is what the practice of the Nicolaitans was. Okay. Um, It's the same. Sexual immorality leading to idolatry. It happened in the time of Moses. It happened in the early church. And guess what? It still happens today. And Jesus is warning us about it. Specifically, right. Church members having sex with people they are not married to. That is sexual immorality. Okay. Church members doing it in your head. Church members playing with porn and becoming addicted to porn. And then the rest of the church doing nothing about it. That's the issue. Now, the temptation is old and powerful. The situation was worse in Thyatira because there the message was being theologically sanctioned. There's a a lady in church, a woman who's a prophetess and she holds a lot of sway because she said, God told me this message. Now, if someone tells you God's got a message, he's told me a message for you, you know, it's, you're placed in a very awkward situation, aren't you? Because you don't want to be disobedient to the word of God, especially if it's, you know, current, right? This is why I'm accenting that God speaks through the Bible currently, through his spirit. That's how he speaks to us. But if someone says to you, I've got a message from God, then it's really really awkward to know what to do with it. And with that divine mandate, this lady in this church says, it's okay to go to the guild events, it's okay to go to the idol feasts, it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols, God wants you to do that, and it's okay for you to participate in what's going on, including perhaps the sexual acts that go along with idol worship in the first century. Now in Pergamum, it was sexual immorality that led to idol worship. In Thyatira, it's the other way around, idol worship which leads to sexual immorality. But they both went together. Now, okay. Sometimes we wonder, why is the Bible so het up about this? Why is God so het up about sexual purity? Why does he go on and on about it? Okay, this is the reason. Whichever way you look at it, one thing leads to another. Sexual immorality will lead to idolatry. Okay. So if we tolerate sexual sin in our lives or in our church, if we give ourselves to it, what does that mean? Let's follow it through. You either give up on Christ, oh, I used to believe, but now I don't. Or you end up watering down Jesus into some sort of sugar daddy in the sky who's morally neutered. It's very different from him who has the sharp double-edged sword or the son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and feet like burnished bronze. This is a complete tragedy. You know, to play with sin and end up worshipping a God who is not God at all and then being deceived about it and yet you're completely mistaken. Or go the other way, you start with idolatry. If you give yourselves to idolatry, 
How far do you go before you've debased yourself, become hooked, become a slave to a sin which Christ died to free you from in the first place? Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, I remember Paul in 1 Corinthians, he spoke a lot about eating food sacrificed to idols, seemed okay there under some conditions. Um, So let me just do a brief aside very quickly just to address that. Okay, this... Eating food sacrificed to idols was an issue for Christians because that was how you got fast food. There were no other restaurants. You went to a temple which, where people would make food offerings up the top and then and maybe indulge in sexual acts, but then that food would be brought down underneath and cooked and then served up, and that's where you'd go. So if you wanted to eat out with people, you went to the temple. Now, the question was, if you got converted out of that background, was that good or bad, should or shouldn't you do it? Paul says, we all know that idols are nothing. That is, they're just statues. There's nothing behind them. There's no other gods, right? So once you've got that clear, you go, oh, okay, food's fine to eat. But what if you've got someone else in your church who got converted out of that background, who then their conscience is compromised because for them to go into that, they would feel like they were sinning. Or if they see you eating, then they think, oh, might be okay for Christians to eat, but then... And then they eat, and then it defiles their conscience because they feel like they're doing something wrong. Paul says at that point, don't do it. Don't do it. Okay. I take it what Paul's talking here is different to what's happening in Thyatira and Pergamum, where they're going there, and they're not just going for food, they are actually going under the direction of Jezebel, this prophetess, and saying it's okay to indulge in the worship as well. And it's okay to actually give yourselves in your bodies to whatever that worship might mean. That's the issue, okay. So Jesus says, look, this prophetess is deceiving people. And he says he's given her time to repent, but she remains unwilling, so he's going to cast her on a bed of suffering. This is ironic She's been lying on a bed of adultery. Jesus says now she's going to lie on a bed of suffering. He pronounces judgment on her in real time in her lifetime. I don't think this is talking about when he comes again. She is going to physically suffer because of her deception. And then he says in verse 22, those who committed adultery with her would also suffer intensely in their lifetimes unless they repented. And then we see why Jesus says this. It's Jesus' warning, actually, so that people would repent. And then in verse 23, those who'd given themselves wholesale to her deception, her children, Jesus says, this is awful, they will be struck dead. This is very serious. And I think he's talking about in their own life. They're going to die early because of this. This is Jesus' judgment in real time on them. He is the one who searches hearts and minds he, he will do this so that the rest of the churches will know that he reads us, he knows what's going on, and he will repay each of us according to our deeds. Now again, we hear that and we can, whoa, get the death wobbles. Because we think, hang on, aren't, aren't we saved by grace? And now we read that he's going to judge us according to our deeds. We are saved by grace, that's true. But here's the thing. Grace is always meant to lead to a changed life. It is always meant to have outcome in our lives. 
If you want an example about this, ask any of the guys who went to the guys event last night and heard from Nick Saros, who had such a changed life because God confronted him in his grace. Fantastic stories to tell. But Nick reminded the guys who were there last night from Titus 2, where Paul says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people and God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from wickedness, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Grace is meant to lead to a transformed life. That's the whole point, why Jesus gave his life for us. In other words, um, where are we up to? Ah, there we are. <laughs> so, <laughs> there, <laughs> all right. Um, the Spirit teaches us the Spirit of grace teaches us to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. Now, some of you will be saying, I'm not sure that that is me. There might be other people in church, but if you knew how bad I was, you'd agree with me, this isn't me. I'm not squeaky clean. I've gone down a path of sin. I've compromised myself. If I'm honest, I've moved away from Christ. What to do? Jesus says in verse 16, Okay, look everyone, eyeball on the page. Look at the word of God. What do you do? Repent, therefore. Repent, Greek word, metanoia, means changing of your mind, your noose, your knowledge. Change your mind to change your life. Turn around, repent. You might say, I can't. Maybe you think, I, I backslide so much, I fall so much, I'm not sure it's possible. I want you to see, and this is liberating, I want you to see that it is possible. Jesus would not have told us to repent if it wasn't. He wouldn't have talked about those who are victorious if it wasn't possible to overcome. If you think it's impossible, look at verse 24. He speaks about the rest of you in Thyatira. To you who do not hold to the false teaching of the prophetess, who have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, which I take is that belief that you can have a bet both ways, you can have a foot in both camps, you can be a Christian and give yourself to idolatry and immorality. That's Satan's so-called deep secrets. But there are people in church who haven't given themselves to that. And what he's saying is it's possible not to go down that path, or if you do go down it, it's possible to repent, to turn around, and to come back. And that's why he tells us. Now, what if you yourself haven't gone down that path, but in church, perhaps you've seen other people go down that path, play with immorality, play with having a bet both ways, but your sin is that you have said nothing about it. You have remained silent. You have given tacit endorsement to what they're doing. Jesus says, verse 16, the rest of you repent. Otherwise, he says, I will soon come to you and will wage war against them, the others, who've gone down that path with the sword of my mouth. In other words, for the sake of your brother or your sister, deal with it in the church. Speak up, help them turn from their sin.
I remember when I was in Bible college, um, occasionally they'd send in a real life minister, a pastor out there to sort of teach us what it was really like. And I remember this guy coming from a very solid, good, reputable church in Sydney. And he turned up and he talked about how you deal with sexual immorality in church. We were going, I got no idea. Uh, What? (laughs) And so he said, uh, he was aware that there was one person within his church who was committing adultery. So in the evening service where this person was present, he stood up and he said, and I don't know what the passage was, but in application he said, I know that one of you is committing adultery and it's a sin and you need to repent. And this week I want you to come and confess it to me because unless you do, you'll keep playing games. We are taking notes. He said, what I wasn't ready for, that person did come and confess, praise God, but what he wasn't ready for was the next person and the next person who also came because he thought he was talking to them. Sin is more real than we think. Okay. And we must repent, Jesus says. It's not an option not to. But I want to say it's also possible. So to these two churches which have faced enormous external pressure and also this subversive internal pressure, Jesus doesn't mince words. But neither does he end there. He says, to those in Thyatira holding on, who haven't given in, he says, look, what I want you to do is just keep holding on to what you have until I come. That's enough. I know how hard it is just to hold on. And for those who do hold on, the victorious, he promises them a personal reward. At Pergamum, to the one who's victorious, there's three rewards. First of all, Manna from heaven, what's that mean? I think it's sustenance to make it. In verse 17, remember manna, the bread of angels given to the Israelites on their journey through to the promised land. What he's promising is help from heaven, divine sustenance to keep you going until you make it. And then he says, There's, I'm also going to give you a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Look, no one really knows what this white stone is, (laughs) okay? But what what can we say? It's clearly precious, it's immensely personal, and it's given as a personal reward by the Lord Jesus himself um, because he values faithfulness to the end. He really does. Now, of the many guesses of what, what it might have been, the best guess is that in a gladiatorial contest, the the victor was given a a white stone with their name on it, and that would give them entrance into the victory feast afterwards. Well, that's the best guess, the victory feast to the one who is victorious. And if that weren't enough, verse 26 and 27, to the one who is victorious and does Jesus' will to the end, Jesus says, that person will share in my rule I will give them authority over the nations. Now that quote about ruling with an iron scepter, that comes from Psalm 2, which is a statement about the Christ, the Son of God. And here Jesus says, guess what? I'm gonna give, I'm gonna share it. I'm gonna share the rule out. It's absolutely staggering. 
you will share his rule over the world. In verse 28, he says, it's like you're given the morning star. This is a reference in Numbers 24, Balaam's fourth oracle, to Christ himself. And that is the message of Jesus to us. We know it's for us because he says, if we have ears, we're to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So I want to finish by listening to what the Spirit is saying to us now in real time in 2022, in November, on the 20th, now, at 11.15. He's saying, first of all, Jesus commends our growth in spiritual fruitfulness, love, deeds, faith, perseverance, doing this more and more, growing in them. He's saying we're not to stagnate as a church. We can't ever think we've made it. We're meant to grow in these things. And Jesus is pleased when he sees growth in spiritual fruit. Some of us have had a very hard year. Faith's been tested. But you're here and you've hung on. And indeed, you've grown through the trials. Well, that is something that Jesus values. And the fact that you're all here following Christ till persevering, not being ashamed of the Son of Man, Jesus knows it and he commends it. So we have to hear his commendation. But yes, he still has a few things against us as a church. Is it the case that we have tolerated sexual immorality? Um, I don't know, but it could be. People having sex with people they're not married to. And if not in body, then I'd say almost certainly in mind. And have we, by our silence, give tacit endorsement, given tacit endorsement to this? Now, I'm not suggesting that we need to conduct a Spanish Inquisition. (laughs) But if these things exist, we should be distressed in ourselves and as a church. And we should be motivated to try and help those people who are stuck. And so I want to say, look, if any of this really does apply to you, I'm available. And I'm not, if you come to me, I'm not going to hit you over the head. I'm going to get alongside you and pray with you to help you. Okay. Even if we're clear on those, is it possible that we can so emphasize grace that in the end we distort grace and we leave no reason to repent? Now, this is a common heresy which I have seen emerge in the Lutheran church and in the Anglican church in the last couple of months in Adelaide. That is, they so emphasize grace, Jesus died for you, you're all acceptable to God, there is no reason to urge anyone to repent. And it's as if they haven't read the gospel, which Jesus says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, you've got to repent and believe the good news. If we distort grace, we deny its purpose, which is to lead to a changed life. And that means we commit idolatry because in our hearts we reduce Christ, we deny his lordship as being the one we ought to follow, and we need to repent. And what I want to say at the end, just to finish up, is that if you need a reason to repent, Jesus, in the end, he, who he is, is our greatest motivation. 
So who is he? He is the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. He is the one who on the cross fought for us against Satan and sin and judgment and he overcame. And he is alive and he is coming back and he will hold the world to account. All right. He's bigger than any addictive thought. He is the son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished blondes. He is the glorious one, the one worth standing for, the one worth suffering for, the one worth dying for. Because to the one who is victorious in the end, he will give us his authority to share in his rule. And if that doesn't blow your mind, then you are a rock. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, thank you for these letters. Thanks for Jesus' words of commendation and thank you for his really clear challenge for all of us to turn from our sin in our lives and to follow him. And thank you that he is a greater motivation and a greater counterpoint to any pressure that we might feel to do otherwise. Thank you for opening our eyes to him. Amen.